You're listening to Igniting Imagination, a podcast to spark the spirit within you from Wesleyan Investive and Texas Methodist Foundation. This season, we are igniting the imagination of leaders through conversations with the four recipients of the 2022 Tom Locke Innovative Leader Award. These spiritual entrepreneurs are pushing the margins of what it means to practice faith and build community in today's world with their bold vision for the world God imagines. For more information, visit wesleyaninvestive.org and click Locke Award. Hi, friends. I'm Lisa Greenwood here with my co-host and good friend, and 2021 Locke Award recipient, Matt Russell. Hi, Matt. Hey, hey Lisa. <laughs> so we've got a great conversation with another yeah. one of our 2022 Locke Innovative Leader Award recipients, mm-hmm. David Bailey. And if you're not familiar with the award, check out our show notes and visit our website for more information. So through this award, the Wesleyan Investive is recognizing innovative leaders, spiritual entrepreneurs, if you will, who are bringing us all a bit closer to the world that God intends. Mm. And David Bailey is certainly one of those people who is moving us closer to that world that God imagines. That is so true. I mean, just an amazing human being. And David believes that the church should lead by example in cross-cultural engagement and reconciliation. And he's the founder and executive director of Arabon, a ministry that cultivates Christian communities to pursue healing and reconciliation in a racially divided world. He's an active speaker, a consultant, a strategist for many national organizations about cultural intelligence and culture making. He's also the co-author of Race, Class, and the Kingdom of God study series. David was named, I think this is super cool, he was named by Christianity Today as one of the 20 most creative Christians we know. Mm -hmm. He serves as a teaching elder in East End Richmond Fellowship. David and his wife, Joy, live in Richmond, Virginia. Lisa, there's just so much about uh, this conversation that, you know, uh, we keep saying an hour's not enough. Right. You know, we need more time. <laughs> it's just beautiful. Yeah. What's yeah. it out to you? Yeah. So, you know, he talks about how Erebon is, uh, means, you know, foretaste of what is to come. And, and I think in a very real way, our conversation with David gave us sort of this foretaste of what could be for the church's witness, right? Yeah, that's right. He He's using language in a ways that is redeeming, even for me, some language that has been wounded, right? And I, yeah. I think that he has a vision for the church that if we captured it, if it, if it stirred our imagination, yes. it might just save us all. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, May I it be wait. so... Yeah, for us to dive into this, it's going to be a treat. Yeah, let's listen to our conversation with David. So, hey, David, it's great to see you. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Really glad to be here. Great. So we want to start out by hearing your story. And I know that's kind of big. So maybe if you could just share some of the significant events, maybe encounters that have um, shaped you and brought you to where you are now. Yeah, well, I'll try to make it quick. So there are like two numbers that are real uh, kind of significant in my life is eight and 2008. And hmm. so uh, when I was eight years old, I was really slow in learning how to read. And so my dad got me a second grade level reading Bible. And he said, hey, read two chapters of the Old Testament, two chapters of the New Testament, Proverbs and Psalms every day. 
and we're going to trust God to teach you how to read. Come on. Come well, I eventually, you know, I grew up in one of those old school households. We just did what your parents told you to do. And <laughs> remember that? And so, <laughs> the good old days. <laughs> the good old days. And, uh, but then I did. I, I, I ended up getting better at reading, but I also grew in a love for scripture. And, mm. and that was just a habit that I've had for the rest of my life. Another thing that happened when I was eight was my parents started to like merge with a church that was actually in the urban inner city area. So it was like literally in a housing project. We started going to church and a housing project. And I remember like, again, it was one of those, those that era where, where parents didn't ask kids what they want to do that often. <laughs> they just say, hey, this is what we're going to start doing. Get and the car. <laughs> get in the car and see, we show up and we're like in these housing projects going to church. And I remember being like, man, I don't like these. I don't like being with these stinky kids. Mm. And I didn't really understand it at the time, but these quote unquote stinky kids were actually way poorer than us. They were actually like really poor and they didn't have parents who had, you know, a lot of the wherewithal to be able to give them baths every day and then get, you know, fresh clothes like the way I've had it. But what that did was those kids, quote unquote, those stinky kids became my friends. Mm. And I, uh, even though racially, ethnically, we were saying race and ethnicity, socioeconomically, we were like um, in a very different space. And so I grew up in a uh, like a working class suburb. And so I'm a, I'm a racial minority in the city, but then I'm an economic minority with power with people that look similar to me. And I didn't know this like crossing socioeconomic differences. And my parents were doing urban and suburban partnerships also. So I was with people who had a lot more money than me. People had a lot less money than me. All of that was quote unquote normal to me. And and I didn't realize that wasn't quote unquote normal until I was in a sociology class in college mm. and people start talking about those people. Mm. And sometimes quote unquote those people are rich people. Sometimes those people are poor people. And I realized, oh, you have very strong opinions about folks that you don't know by name. Yeah. Wow. And so that really shaped me. And then the 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 third thing that happened when I was eight is I started playing the piano a little bit by Eight. I grew up in a Pentecostal context, you know, which has Wesleyan roots. And I started playing the piano around eight. I became the church piano player around 11. When I was 14, my parents, like they said, hey, if you negotiate a gig, we'll take you wherever you are, where you want to uh, to, to do a gig. And so, you know, back in the day, minimum wage was like $5 an hour. So I could play the piano for 50 bucks in one hour. I was like, that's a great deal. And so I started playing around the city. And by the time I was in college, I would play at the country club, maybe Friday night maybe do like an outreach ministry with my band Saturday in the afternoon in the hood. Then I might be do like a black jazz club with kind of like the kind of black upper class of Richmond. And I would then do a Presbyterian church in the morning for like a nine, 11 o'clock service. I would do my Pentecostal church at one, about four or five hours later, uh, <laughs> I would do. Uh, you were hustling early. <laughs> <laughs> then I, I would do this like even service with a, a, a pastor that was from India, and it was my first time realizing there's an Eastern mentality and a Western mentality. Oh, yeah. And basically, I became like a cultural anthropologist over the weekend because what makes somebody dance at the country club is different than what makes somebody dance at the Black Pentecostal church. That's different than what makes like the Presbyterian sway, you know. And so, <laughs> tap their foot, <laughs> right? So it's it just was like all that's kind of like how I like paid through college and and paid for my last semester of college and and like then 
I you know, I married for two years. My wife says, Hey, Dave, this is 2008. We get married in 2006, 2008. My wife says, David, you realize that people keep on asking you, How do you bring people together across differences? And you know how to explain it, you know how to do it. You should maybe start writing and teaching about it. And that's how Irvine got started. Mm-hmm. And at that same time, we joined a church planting, uh, planting team to start a church called East End Fellowship in Richmond, Virginia. And we took like the John Perkins CCDA model. And so a lot of things that were theory, this, this church became kind of almost like the social lab to try things out and to see what happened when you got socioeconomic diversity, racial ethnic diversity, education diversity. And we we're trying to figure out how do we be a reconciling community in this, this, this context. That's amazing. I love that. I mean, just thinking about the cultural anthropologist that was happening all in one weekend and, and the, the church that becomes kind of the social lab. That's really good, David. I mean, I, I feel like I didn't really, I mean, it's a story that kind of God wrote for me and I just like, have tried to participate in it, you know, and and try to be responsive to 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 the things that God has really laid out. Now I know I sound a little Calvinist, but I, I really am more Wesleyan than Calvinist. But <laughs> that's that's a nerdy theological jokes for all those nerdy right, theologians. Right, I appreciate the nerdy theological <laughs> jokes actually. So tell us a little bit more about Erebon. I mean, you, you talked about sort of its um, beginning, but tell us a little bit more about what you do and what it looks like. Yeah, so what Airbon, what we do is that we cultivate Christian communities to be a place of healing and reconciliation for a racially divided world. You hear us talk about forming reconciling communities. Like, you know, every Christian community may or may not be a diverse community. And like diversity doesn't guarantee reconciliation. Diversity guarantees conflict. And we need to like have practices of reconciliation and healing. Let me just make one qualifier that I feel like there's some folks that be like, man, I'm tired of reconciliation. We need to do justice. You know, like you can't have justice without reconciliation. You can't have reconciliation without justice. I mean, it's the, the biblical like framework of all. It's not an either or, it's an and both. But long story short, what we're trying to do is that we are trying to place places of healing, almost like an ecology. So we have this like image of like a rec, uh, like the, the reconciliation, uh, reconciling community house. And so at the foundation is understanding reconciliation and spiritual formation to realize that that's that like at the point of conflict is where a lot of transformation can happen. Then the second thing is that there's another layer with these pillars that you got to have where you understand your context. And a lot of people don't really understand the context. And so we really help folks understand the context. Mm. And then the third thing that we do when you understand my story, it makes a ton of sense is we encourage people to, to think innovatively to engage in what we call reconciling culture making. Like we're here today because of the culture that was made yesterday. If we want to see something different tomorrow, we got to create a new culture today. When you think about the history of race in America, for hundreds of years, people were proactively innovative on doing wrong and evil. Mm-hmm. So then what happens in 1968 when we changed the laws we were just like, oh, cool. Everybody knows it's not right, but it, we're not as proactive in, in bringing healing and reconciliation and that creativity. So we need creativity and innovation. And so as an organization, that's the thing that we're trying to help Christian communities do is like be really rooted in the scripture and the way that God goes about, it says, hey, we should go about doing this. 
understand your context, like do informed action, not just action, ignorant action. And the third thing is, it's like focus on culture making. Um, like what Peter Drucker says, culture eats strategy for lunch. And so like, let's be intentional about our culture making. I'd love to hear you talk more about how that kind of uh, boots on the ground and how that's working itself out in kind of practical ways, because I think you're right. I mean, I love the way that you are in some ways <laughs> redeeming the word reconciliation, because I think over the last couple of years, that's been put aside uh, by the church or by some movements in a, in a sense saying, hey, you know, we've never been conciliated. And you're, yeah. you're using that word in a way that is different. And I think needs to be redeemed by the church. Would you talk about that a little? And then I'd also just like to hear some the way this, that's practically working itself out. Yeah, so like, I mean, I, I, I do think if we're talking social, social theory, and 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 you're saying, well, hey, we don't want to if, if we're we're defining the word reconciliation by trying to bring the relationship back the way it originally was, we don't want the same re- relationship with Europeans, Indigenous people, and Africans. Like that wasn't a cool relationship, <laughs> and so conciliation would be the proper term, but. For us, we're rooting the conversation in a very theological word that the biblical narrative starts off, like part of the good news is that the world was whole, it was good, it was beautiful. And it started off with beauty and wholeness, and it started off with culture, and it started off with collaboration, it started off with diversity. And then it was broken. Yeah. you know. And then injustice happened, and then oppression happened. And so I just think we got to be reminded that it wasn't always this way. And then what's even more exciting the garden is going to turn into a city. And so the garden is like God's creation, but the city is when humanity takes God's creation and makes some a new imagination out of it. And, and in collaboration with God, we create something and that will be redeemed. And so like that is, that's as Christians, we can like innovate out of that. Like we can engage out of that. And, and, and it just, you know, the the Christian life, we sell it so short when it's only about saving souls, right? Like, if we could have like a more embodied faith, a richer like faith that's like, oh, it wasn't always messed up. It won't always be messed up. And we can actually be a foretaste. That's what the word Arabah means. It means a foretaste. We could be a foretaste of the kingdom of God to come. It's like, man, that's a great thing to be a part of. Who doesn't want to be a part of that? Beautiful. Beautiful. Preach. <laughs> <laughs> I get a little excited about it. Oh. <laughs> I'm, I'm having to hold back here because I just want to go off with yeah. you. <laughs> so, so you know, and, but you know, let me tell you this too, though. Like I, I would say, because I think you asked me about some of the practical stuff. Yes. Um, so one of my practices that I have is I will get knowledge from anybody. I only get wisdom from people who are like rooted in community, like like people that are like rooted into something. You got so many talking heads. You know, you could, I mean, I love reading, you know, you, you, I got, I'm surrounded by books in my office, but there's nothing like how to apply knowledge and how to apply knowledge within a context, right? And so the thing that I could say about our ministry is that like my wife and I, we committed to say like, hey, let's try to see if we could be here for 40 years and see what God does. Mm-hmm. Like the people that I were looking up to we're like doing ministry for 40, 50 years. Right. And then you just see their impact and say like, let's evaluate every 10 years. So start the 2008, we were evaluated every 10 years. So I, I'm in, I'm in the second quarter, you know? And so this is like 2008. So was it 20? So we're like four years into the second quarter. 
you know, and I think that's the thing. Like we overestimate what we can say and do and accomplish through like social media and a statement. We overestimate what we can do in a year. We underestimate what we can do in 10 years of like 10 years of like faithfully engaging in this work. And, 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 and a lot of it on the day to day doesn't feel like you're doing anything like, you know, this, this, this award, I mean, this, this award was so encouraging. Like, let me tell you (laughs) what I got the package on the, my award, my wife and I, like in our house, part of our struggle that we've been dealing with over the last year is that my wife has been getting sick for since we moved to the community. And we realized last summer in July, after I was officiating the wedding, my wife had to move out because she couldn't stay in the house anymore. So literally for eight months, we were trying to figure out, do we, can we stay in Richmond? Can we stay in this community? I mean, at that point, I was like, I mean, sometimes even as a husband, you're like, man, am I like, I mean, are we doing the right thing? Like, it's just like, I mean, all these things. And I'm like, let's just pack up and just go somewhere. But we didn't know exactly where to go because the new was environmental and know exactly what it was. So we went through a whole series of figuring out, okay, we can't stay in the house. Here's where the toxins are. Here's the thing that's messed up. When I got the package, and I'm talking about, it was so much money. I mean, it was money out of money out of money, time after time of time, still doing the work in the ministry. Literally, when I got the package, we had to, the terracotta pipes underneath our house, our our 95-year-old house that said, it's time to give up the ghost. We had to rip up stuff in the basement, take away the porch. And and I literally had to climb up on, they they put part of the porch back, but we didn't have steps. So I had to climb up on the porch to be able to get the package. And out of nowhere, like, this award that says, like, hey, we see what you're doing. And I didn't know there were people in Austin that was paying attention to what we were doing. But this, like, this, like, literally happened, what, 14 years after, like, just just doing something, like being in the second quarter, you know, uh, of just trying to stay at something. And so there was no guarantee. I, I cannot tell you how encouraging that is. And so for those who are listening, it's like, you know, I hope that you get, I hope somebody sees and you get an award. I hope something happens, but there is something rewarding about just the lives that you impact when you just kind of give your life away for the sake of Christ, you know? So I have kind of happened to take a deep breath here. I'm all teary yeah. <laughs> thinking about the ways that God works um, in in unexpected and miraculous ways when there is sacrifice when it's hard to say yes every day and you feel like you're doing the right thing and you feel like you're following where God is leading and mm-hmm. and then your family is suffering and you're sacrificing and you're saying, is this right? And, 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 and you know, I don't know how all things weave together for good, but, but as you said, you, you sort of lean in and you, you believe and you trust and you surrender. And so. yeah, you know, I, I, you know, and I would say at the risk of sounding like a prosperity gospel preacher, what I could say, at least in this story, I mean, like literally, it was exactly what we needed to get yeah. this through. And I remember talking to my spiritual director, who's he's, he's been like a mentor of mine. I, I've learned this new term called spiritual director, but it's a guy I've been walking with since I was eighteen years old. And and when my um my wife and I just like just having challenges and trouble, we just get on the porch with him and his wife and we talk. And I remember it was like this last fall. He said, "David, what does the word surrender mean to you?" Mm. I was like, I was like, 
I guess you just have to like just kind of let go and and like literally let God do whatever God's going to do. And he's like, look at what God's done over your life. I mean, like you know, over, I'm 41 now, so you're talking. We've been walking together almost a long time. I can't. I'm not, my math is <laughs> slow, but over <laughs> 20 years, right? Over 20, yeah, almost 23 years now. And he was just like, God has it. And I felt like the moment of surrender, you know, because, you know, we're not doing the Arabah ministry. For, I mean, like, there was no guarantee. Like, we just, when we started in 2008, people felt like we were in a post-racial society because we had a black president. Like, there was, if you would have told me somebody came from a time machine and said 2020 and 2021 was going to happen and we're going to deal with the most craziest amount of, like, polarization pre the Civil War, I would have not believed it by any means because it just the energy didn't feel that way. But God was like just trying to stay faithful. And then when we kind of started to go faithful, it felt like the more that we went faithful, things kind of started to kind of like get tested. I mean, it was like when when God delivered the people of Israel out of out of uh, Egypt, then like Pharaoh let you go at first, but now he's kind of coming behind you and you got a red sea in front of you. <laughs> You know, like yeah. it's just been in that way. And yeah. at least in this chapter of the story, I mean, we got the toxins out of our house and it was exactly what we needed to like not go underwater. And so it's just such a a huge I mean, just seeing how God orchestrated stuff is just amazing. So you um referenced the sort of explosive nature of the last couple of years in terms mm-hmm. of racial division and injustice and inequity and and that you could wouldn't have imagined the depth of that explosiveness. I mean, these are my words, but 14 years ago, mm-hmm. um, you knew it was you needed, but, but here we are um, in kind mm-hmm. of unbelievable ways. So I'm, I would love to hear you talk about what that looks like today as you're going in to work with organizations and particularly, frankly, churches. Yeah, I mean, I was talking to a pastor of a pretty large, influential church, and he was explaining 2020 and 2021. Mm-hmm. And he said, David, I realized in 2021 that I'm not these people's pastors. Their pastor is like whatever their media source of choice is. Mm-hmm. And it's been, I mean, that's been a, a realization. Like, we are being formed. Like we become the thing that we practice. And so a lot of it's trying to kind of remind people that you have to practice being a Christian. Like you like you you have to practice like you know, when I was a professional musician, I just didn't like think all of a sudden I'm just gonna like get up on stage and just kill the game. Like you you have to put that into practice and that's the same thing with your own faith. So a lot of it is like just trying to remind people that we are people of the way, right? There is a a way, a practice of engaging in this way. I love John and Charles Wesley, you know, um, because, I mean, they both not only have the personal piety dynamic, but they also have, the, like, they didn't separate social holiness and personal holiness. Yeah. And I think you, you end up having people that bifurcate those two things, even amongst Christian communities, but which is an and both on, 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 on these things. And, and I think, Charles Wesley, I mean, John and Charles Wesley, you know, had it. And so it's like reminding people of like righteousness and justice. It's helping people to 
really open our eyes and see their context. You know, as a professional musician, you have to know how to like understand context. You know, like you just can't connect with all these different communities. And and I could be like, oh, well, I'm from Richmond and I'm black, and then therefore I can't connect with people of a different race or ethnicity or socioeconomic background. You know, of music, and that's the kind of excuses that we give for ourselves. You know, and you know, if you're going to be a professional musician, you got to figure it out. If you're going to be an actor, you got to figure it out. If you're going to be a dancer or any kind of comedian or whatever, you're going to have to figure it out. Mm. And then the third thing is, is that we we have to create, right? And it looks like let's not complain about what we see, what's going wrong, and curse the darkness. What does it look like if we we be the light? Now, I had an early vocation that was that was around creating, and my wife is a, a visual artist. And so we we had a vocation that learned how to cultivate creativity. But if you think about it, you don't have to like you don't have to really learn how to be creative. Like you have to learn how to be a skilled artist. But we're born creative. Kids mm. start off with imagination. And so I think a lot of what we're doing is trying to help awaken people's like latent imagination that was like suppressed to say, Oh, you gotta be an adult. You know, and you and being an adult means being boring and, you know, kind of doing like, uh, you know, I think we've been heavily influenced by the industrial revolution. And so it's just like, let's kind of be a cog in the wheel of some kind of factory type of thing. Um, but no, like we all are uniquely crafted and, and, and made with the imprint of God. And we all have a unique ex- artistic, unique expression that God has, has, has created us for and so we try to help both institutions and individuals unlock that. One of the things I, I wonder about is there is this kind of virulent anti-blackness that exists within white churches. Uh, and we've seen that particularly within white evangelical churches. And it runs deeply under um, uh, the surface. And they are... We are, and I'm going to say we because I'm a, um, you know, a middle class white guy that is in constant repentance of my own evangelical roots that taught me this structure. In some ways, I think about Christian Wyman, a poet that says there are some words that are so damaged, we need to not use them for a while. And I've often wondered if the word evangelical and white uh, together, the evangelical white church, um, is one of those words that we really need to be suspect of when it comes to the work of reconciliation. Uh, and so I wonder just how you negotiate the anti-blackness within those structures uh, in your own work. Well, you know, for me, I, I think there's two, I think there's two parts. I think one of it is, is that, well, let me define some terms because it, because there's a few like definitions of terms. And so, Ultimately, like there in, in our country, there has been a racial hierarchy that's that's been established, and that hierarchy had white people at the top, black people at the bottom, and our country did its best to try to evaporate indigenous people, you know, so that like the, the, or, or either evaporate them or to kind of push them aside so they aren't seen, yeah. and so then you you know, and then our immigration policies have basically created this like hierarchy of in between and and these are all like you know if anybody doesn't believe me i mean these they were like supreme court cases where you had asian folks saying hey we're not we're not black we're actually white sometimes yeah, we're being white yeah yeah you know and all that kind of stuff right. so so this hierarchy is this is just statements of fact and so 
that becomes a shorthand for a term called white supremacy, where a dictionary is like a person that sees the white race superior to any other race, particularly African-American race or black race. The question is, are, are folks walking around with capes on and, and skinheads and that kind of way? Most of us aren't in that way, but have we been socialized in a way of thinking that white is right, that it's the standard, that it's the best? It, it, it I mean, if you have any kind of honest conversation, this is not just something amongst white people. Like, this is a, a way that our country has been ordered and socialized for longer than it's not. You're talking hundreds of years versus decades of, of saying it's wrong. So culture doesn't change that fast, right? Mm-hmm. I, I lay that background because, you know, one of the ways, the one things I talk a lot is like the racial hierarchy of white supremacy, what, what you might call it is a spiritual principality that was manifested economically, legislated politically, and affects us all relationally. And this is something that has impacted all of us. And so I think right now, white evangelicalism is, is, is kind of being the post, poster child of like either anti-blackness and or white supremacy. But the reality of it is, is that it's pretty bipartisan. And, and like both for conservatives and, and progressives. So the way it looks like amongst conservatives is it's indifference. That's what white supremacy might look like. But the way it looks amongst progressive is paternalism. And so you end up finding, like, at the end of the day, it's still white people that are being in charge. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, and it's like, and there's a, a high condescension that happens in progressive circles. And they're like, well, we're not like those kind of white people over there. And it ends up being white people arguing with white people about racism or like what justice ought to look like and all those type of things. And so I, I really think when you really look at this, you realize that, man, this is a deep spiritual problem. <laughs> like, 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 you know, like this is a deep spiritual problem. And I think one of the things that we, we have to be care- careful of is like when Jesus talks about what well, scriptures, not even just only Jesus, but like, like, but Jesus specifically said like, Hey, it's okay for me to call a sin of another brother and sister. But before I try to get the sawdust out in their eye, let me see the plank that's in my eye and like to try to like to, to look at what's going on in that way. And, and, and I think that I think that's something that we all can 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 engage some exercise in. Hmm. And so then when we look at like language, you talk about like kind of white evangelicalism. Yeah, we're I mean, progressive. I kind of well, lumped those two things in together. <laughs> they, they, they use different language, but the same engine's driving it. Right. Exactly. And, and, you know, and, so and, I, I, those, it's not as if that's that. Those things they they they're language games that are being played. Yeah, to hide to hide the same sin. Yeah, yeah, and the same that, sin. That's my <laughs> and and at the end of the day, it's really like. And what's common about this? I actually don't think that race was the original sin. I think it was um, actually greed and. And I think that's, again, the thing that's like bipartisan. It's about power. It's about greed. Andy Crouch says it this way, that like um, money is power in liquid form, you know? And so I I think this is where an alternative kingdom can be, is really, really helpful. You know, this is where I'm a little bit Anabaptist in this particular kind of way, where I really do think that we need to understand that there's an alternative kingdom, an alternative way of engaging in the world. And and we can be formed to be a different type of people, you know. And I think this is a thing where it's not just only that white people need to be saved, 
but we all need to be saved and delivered from something. And it's really this malformation in our country has either infected or affected all of us. You know, it's, it's I mean, I heard like Dr. Jennings, Willie Jennings calls it like a disease, you know, mm-hmm. like it's a disease yeah. that we've all been impacted by. And that's not too different than our understanding of sin as Christians, right? Like, so it's, it's actually, I really think that we have the best tools to be able to deal with this principality in ways that, that I think if we could embrace the tools that God has given us, and if we could own the level and depth of the sin, then we can actually, I just remember scripture saying that God is faithful and just to, to forgive us and to heal us and, and to redeem us and to restore us. And I think there's a lot of work that can be done. When you say it, David, it feels hopeful. I mean, it does. And it's, we're so far from where God has called us to be. And yet I think you're right. I mean, we, the gospel gives us the best tools to be loving and hopeful and grace filled, um, Mm -hmm. to seek justice and equity and joy even. Right. Yeah. Cause I think it, you know, I think particularly for us as Christians, like we're resurrection people, right? Like, mm-hmm. like we're folks that brings meaning out of death, you know, mm-hmm. um, that, that, that well, God's brought meaning out of death and, and suffering and, and all of that. And I, and I think, you know, it was really interesting. Um, uh, Renee Padilla was at the Lausanne gathering and it was a behind the scenes conversation that was going on. And he says, man, all of you Americans are prosperity, um, uh, wow. gospel folks. Some of y'all are just charismatic. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> okay. That's right. That's right. So what does that look like in, in terms of the, the work that you're doing to like, so repentance is really a, a verb. It's not just yeah. a, 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 it's not just verbiage. <laughs> and so what does it look like for us to have a metanoia, to, to have a paradigm shift and to walk in a very different way, right? Because I can repent of the sin of racism personally and still live in a structure that doesn't need my repentance to operate just fine. Thank you. So what yeah. does it mean then to um, be involved in actions that, um, that bear witness to that type of metanoia? Yeah, I love that. Yeah, so the you know, so so I think some of we reduce the word repentance down to making a confession and just like admitting wrongdoing or admitting something that is wrong, even if it's somebody hasn't done it themselves. But I, I think that like this word repentance, I mean, it's just such a rich word, and even when you look at it, um, you know, it talks about like metamorphosis, like changing. There's an action to it, and then even when you look at the way sins, transgressions, offenses happen in the scriptures, it's not only like individuals taking account for it, but communities taking account for it. Like if you, I don't know how people spend time in the book of Leviticus, but the first eight chapters is really dealing with like all types of atoning for, for different types of sins, not only just individual sins, but also sins for the community that are known and unknown, sins for leadership, known and unknown, mm. Um, and, and it's, it's really fascinating. So it's like all of these things are actually very helpful frameworks for us because whether it's like individual community as a leader, there are ways that we can not only just like confess it, allow Jesus to atone for it, but we can also repair and restore. And so 
the way that I kind of look at it, if you if you see like the world being fractured like you know a million different puzzle pieces, we mm. all have a, a unique shape that God has set us up for to fit in with somebody else. Mm. And 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 that's the thing that I would really encourage people to do is to say like, hey, today, what what are the things that I'm already doing? Man, what it would what would it look like for me to kind of like engage in a work of repair this week, this year? What's something I can maybe discern to do over the next ten years? I mean, and we really underestimate like what ten years could do. Dr. King, like he didn't set out to start off this like national movement, and it's something that kind of annoys me today because like people are like, hey, we're going to start a new national movement. I'm like. That doesn't happen that way. Like, <laughs> Dr. King was just like the youngest. He was just trying to get away from his dad's church, out of his dad's <laughs> shadow. He's in Montgomery, Alabama. He's the youngest preacher out of there. He's the, the youngest one, the least amount to lose. He just so happened to be good looking, extremely articulate, and knew how to leverage technology. But the most faithful thing that he could do was the bus boycott for his community. And it was that, and then just the fact that technology was going on that he knew kind of how to leverage and just there was a momentum that was happening. But he was only doing it for 13 years before he got assassinated from 55 to 68. And so I think that's something that I would encourage folks to, to, to think through. And the other thing I would give too is to also have a long view. The NAACP was started in 1909. The first court case that they won was in 1954. Oh, wow. It was 45 years before they kind of did anything that felt like it made progress. And so I think that, you know, we can kind of get upset that, you know, things didn't happen that quick today, but stuff just takes a long time. And I think we need to have a long view in mind. That's what I love about you saying, hey, I want to be better down here for 40 years. Let's look at this in terms of, you know, not the next two years, but the next 40. I love yeah. that. Uh, David, I'll just ask you some kind of rapid fire questions. And that's a, that's a loose term that could be as quick and as, you know, dirty as you want them to be. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> first question is kind of is looking back and, and like where you're at and all the things you've done and all the things that you have experienced. What do you wish you would have known? Uh, when you were starting out, if you could, if you could say to, you know, the younger version of yourself where you're standing right now, what advice might you give that person? You know, I think I would say two things. I think one thing I would say is make sure that you take care of yourself and, and don't see that as being selfish. But actually, um, I've, I've had to learn over the years to Sabbath, to find hobbies, to love myself as well as loving my neighbor, right? <laughs> like, and, 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 and God cares about both of those things. The second thing I would say to myself is just one, just understand the role that capital and resources play in kingdom work. Mm. I, I, did, I did not understand that until 10 years into doing the ministry. And that's just been very, very helpful. Great. Gosh, that's a whole other conversation we could have, David. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that the truth? Well, and so the second question would be, what what are the things that you wish that leaders in the church knew? You know, one of the questions I ask people often is like, who has more influence in the world, pastors or artists? 
and everybody always says artist. And then I will say, who do you think the second one is? And I might lift up my, the iPhone and they say entrepreneurs. But yet when we feel like somebody's called by God, we send them to seminary, <laughs> you know? And so I, I, I think that I, you know, I know that artists and entrepreneurs can be weird, you know, like, and we just can kind of like, you know, move to a, a, a beat to a different drum. And, but I actually think like finding places and like helping to encourage that. And it doesn't take a, it doesn't take a lot, you know, it, it takes a little bit of just like having a place to just be and to be like, Hey, you're not crazy. And let me encourage you and let me pray for you. And, you know, do you need any capital? Because they could take some capital and make that into a whole lot of other kind of stuff. And, you know, you think about like what seminary educations cost. What if we, what if we granted that kind of seminary education for somebody to actually create some stuff, right? Right. To, to make some things, you know? Yeah. And so I think that's something that I would um, really encourage churches. I wish our church leaders and folks knew. Amen. It's really hard for me just not to, and you'll have to edit this out to just go off with you too, because I'm just, I'm with you. <laughs> I think seminary, we stick it in, we call it graduate work, right? So you have to go through a high school education, undergraduate, before we open up the mysteries, of, right? And right. so you're telling me folks that don't have high school education can't be into the work of God and don't need this? Right. We right. reify it. We stick it up in a caste system and we, it just makes me mad. A hundred percent. And it's really like a layover of like Catholic Protestant oh, debates. Yeah. And then it just ended up being Protestant, Protestant debates. Yeah. And I mean, it's like, I mean, this is the one thing I did. Somebody told me to read 24 books in one particular topic that you get a master's degree level understanding in it. Yeah. So I was just like, let me just read a hundred books a year and save my money. And it's been, <laughs> it's worked out pretty well. Yeah, right? It sure has. Yeah. Or when I got out of seminary, I realized there may have been four texts that really shaped me. You right. Know? And it really right. was a conversation and the community. Yeah. It yeah. wasn't about the scholasticism. There was, I mean, there was that, of course, yeah. but it really was a conversation, community, and praxis that right. we're to be doing at the communal level anyway. And that's kind of why I'm like super excited about like the fact that this collective thing is like to be able to be there. Cause like two of the four people in my cohort, I've all, I mean, I've really admired them, have wanted to get some time with them already, you know? And then when I saw you, I was like, Oh man, we kind of like got very similar backgrounds. Like, I mean, yes. it's, it's like a variation of the same. And I, I just have never, I, I never heard of you before. Like, you know, and it just, it's so, so it's like, I don't know why I'm a pretty big deal, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you why you haven't like, heard of me. <laughs> I'm like, but I mean, like, I wish I would. I mean, I wish, I mean, we would be friends. If we were in the same city, we'd yeah. be hanging we're out. Like, be I mean, like it yeah. just, it's so I'm just like super excited about this, you know? Yeah, me too. That's what I found in this whole work is that I'm, I'm finding these like siblings I'm, that, that right. I never knew I had. I'm like, oh, because we're grinding out in the same way. Yeah. You know, and then I just think, am I alone? And then uh, I feel like, you know, like one of the prophets, am I alone? And then God shows up with, uh, you've never been alone. Right. Here's, right. And here's all these, other, you know, it's like, oh. Yeah, there's 7,000 more prophets. Yeah, right? <laughs> right. And a lot. They've been grinding harder than you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, so I guess the, the last question I'd ask is at, at the essence of it, you know, um, and you had intimated this in terms of just, you know, talking about uh, some of the Wesleyan background, but what is the heart of that for you? What's the, 
the the heartbeat of Wesleyanism for you? Um, what drives that? What's what's the engine of that for you? I think that I think a lot of times we forget that John Wesley wasn't Wesleyan; he was Anglican, mm-hmm. right? And he understood formation, and I think that. Like, I mean, the Holiness Clubs, it was a cohort of like-minded people. It was the contextualizing the singing and the songs to put theology in the context of of its time and uh, uh, through contemporary song. But it wasn't just like Jesus is my boyfriend and and, but it was actually like substantive things, you know, and and it was all about the context. Why? Because it want, he wanted individuals to be formed, not just for only personal piety, but for the sake of the world mm. and, 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 and that like social that that, that kind of like social piety, that social holiness, as well as personal holiness. And so, I think like forgetting the fact that he was that Anglican part of it, and he was just like doing a little remix on the formation and and bringing it contextually, you know, across the the uh, Atlantic like both ways, I think was really amazing. That's great. I never thought of that as uh, Wesley is hip hop artist. He's just sampling and he's doing some <laughs> things to reform some stuff. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Get out of that, creating a whole new genre. Yeah, man. He was like Kanye before Ye was Kanye. He, right. <laughs> <laughs> That's the title of your next book on Wesleyanism. <laughs> <Right there. laughs> that needs to be written, brother. <laughs> That's fantastic. Oh, David Bailey, you are such a blessing, and it's been such a gift to be with you. We want to send you off with a blessing. So with the help of my friends and those listening, um, we are going to bless you as we close our time together. So, David, today we give thanks to God for you and for the ways that you move toward the fractured places in the church. It would be easy to turn away or to walk on the other side of the street, but instead you enter directly into the tension of racism and the things that divide us. And you see the potential in every situation, the beauty of God's handiwork in in each person and each church and community. And then you invite people to live and act closer to who God created us to be. And it matters and it's making a difference. So, David, we give thanks to God for you. And we pray God's blessing on you and on joy that you might experience God's presence and merciful grace in ways that heal and sustain you when your soul is weary and fills you with assurance that you are wholly and deeply loved by the grace of God. May it be so. Igniting Imagination is a production of the leadership ministry team at Wesleyan Investive and Texas Methodist Foundation with excellent editing support from TruthWork Media. Check out our show notes and website for more information about all our guests and how you can follow them. I'm Blair Thompson-White, and from all of us at Leadership Ministry, thanks for listening.